Would you turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 1? This is a sermon that I am finishing, hopefully, God willing, today. Hebrews chapter 1. This sermon is entitled, Exalted Above All Angels. And if you have notes, there's some notes in the back if you want to follow along. Uh, some of you have electronic notes. You can follow along as well. As we recall, if you look in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we recall in chapter 1, he lays out his thesis for us. He's going to talk about the glories of Christ. He's going to talk about the, how Christ is the better priest. He is the better mediator. He is the better hope. He says here, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And so the culmination of all revelation the culmination and the climax, the apex of how he communicates to his people is through Jesus Christ. Before in the Old Testament we had the burning bush or we had, uh, or you had dreams or prophecies and now he says it's come to its culmination, its apex, it's in Jesus Christ. And so as he comes to the text, we're looking at verses 4 to 14. We're going to finish this portion. He now says, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What is he saying? And he sa is saying this, his whole premise is this, is that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. Now, we might not have any connection with this. Um, as you recall, maybe last month, I do, a, I do a sermon on Hebrews every time we have communion. And so we just continue on through the book of Hebrews, but... As you recall, in part of my introduction from last month, so many folks are so enamored with angels. I mean, I used to watch, um, what's that guy's name? Landon, Highway to Heaven, right? They used to walk with these jeans, and he was a, an ex-cop who turned into an angel, and he had to earn his wings on earth. You remember that? Or Touched by an Angel. You guys remember that in the 90s? Or am I dating myself, right? I remember I met a woman, she's, she loved angels so much, she had uh, precious moments, angels all over her house. I think she believed more in angels than in anything. She had angel relics all over her house, an angel pendant, and I asked, oh, what church are you part of? She goes, I don't go to church. I don't believe in organized religion. I just believe in angels. And see, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, folks who emphasize on spiritual experiences such as angels and these things, are not getting the point of the Bible. You're missing out. You're throwing the baby with the bathwater. And he says, basically, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, the reason why this text is here, and I'm not going to reread it all the time, because uh, the whole way through, because Mike did, but God gave this passage so that you would worship Christ above all else, including angels. This is why he wrote the book of Hebrews. If you recall, this text is talking about the superiority of Christ over angels. You notice in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, he is better. Verse 5, he says, for which of the angels did he ever say? And then verse 6, he says, again, the firstborn into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. So over and over, all the way to verse 14, he talks about angels. Now, we're not going to say angels don't exist. They absolutely do exist. But we have to place them in the correct position that they are. 
subservient to Christ, not above Christ. The angels are spirit beings. They do not have flesh and bones. They have the appearance of human form. They're intelligent. They have emotions. They cannot marry or procreate, as according to Matthew 22. They can't die. The fallen ones are judged. They were created before man. They're older than men. They're numerous. Revelation chapter 5 says that they, they are myriads over myriads of angels. They are God's messengers. They are God's created beings. But understand this. They are only messengers. They're organized by ranks and divisions. The fallen ones were led by Lucifer and a third of them fell. And so the reason why the writer of Hebrews is writing is because folks in that time, the Jewish culture, emphasized the position of angels over even God at times. They had an overemphasis on angels that needed to be dealt with. The Jewish view of angels was prevalent. It was colored by rabbinical interpretations. They used to take the Bible, and we would call the Talmud. They would take the Torah, and then they would write commentaries around the edges, and then some other rabbi would write commentary on the commentary around the edges. And then they would write commentary over the commentary over the commentary over the edges. And so they would, a lot of tradition would be layered upon layered upon layered on them. Oftentimes angels, they thought that angels controlled stars. They thought there was a calendar angel who controlled time. They believed that uh, um, in Colossae, there was a Gnostic heresy where folks were saying, you know what, I, I, I believe in angels more than Christ. In fact, Paul had to say, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. So some folks even bowed the knee to angels. So in the midst of this, the writer of Hebrews uses the Hebrews' own sacred scripture, which is the Old Testament, to tell them that they're wrong. To tell them that this Christ, this Messiah, is greater than angels. In fact, he is greater than anything. He should not be on par with anything. When you speak of Christ, he should not be on the same table as any other viewpoint. He is the, notice he says here, it's like language is stretching to its utmost. In verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is saying that Jesus Christ has the same nature of God and that he radiates or he brings forth or he shines forth the glory of God himself. So, In explaining the superiority of Christ over and above all angels, the writer of Hebrews gives us six very forceful arguments as to why you should worship Christ with abandon. Not traditions of angels, not traditions of traditions of angels, or superstitions, I would even say. Although angels are real, some folks have a whole different view of other things, right? There are six very forceful arguments. The first one is worship Christ because he is fully and completely God. And this is just by way of review. He says in verses 4 and 5, having become as much better than them, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have a name before he came to earth or that he didn't have a name before he was resurrected. 
This simply means that he is recognized as such. He is the all-powerful one who has defeated Satan, death, and sin. In verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you? The obvious answer for verse 5 is no one. No one receives the name above all names, which is the Christ. Now, we come to our second point. All that by way of review, but our second point in verse 6. Verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Secondly, worship Christ because he is the exalted and treasured one. Worship Christ because he is the exalted and treasured one. Notice he says here, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. Now, he brings again, some say this is the second coming, but it seems to be foreign to the context. What does he mean? He's saying that whenever Christ comes, he's saying as Christ comes, all the angels adore him. All the angels bow down. All of creation should bow down. The only people who are in rebellion is us, brothers and sisters. Those who hear the gospel and do not bow the knee are those who are in rebellion to him. And he says the angels bow down. So the force of the writer's argument, as one commentator says, is the same. The point being that the time of the advent of the sun, when the sun comes, whatever advent that may be, the angels appear as attendant worshipers. Now, you've got to think about this. I'm not going to go up against a fight against an angel. I'm going to lose. You understand? These are God's created beings. They could, they could uh, transport themselves quickly. They're powerful. They bring about fire and brimstone. They are his Mode of operation as God, oper as God operates in the world, he uses them. We don't need to know how he does that. He just does. But having said that, Jesus is called, notice he says here, Jesus is called in verse, verse 6, the firstborn into the world. Now we have to take a look at what this word firstborn is. In the Bible, firstborn doesn't necessarily mean born first. I know it sounds weird, but in the Bible, firstborn doesn't necessarily mean born first. It could mean oldest son. You could have an older daughter, and then you have another son, and he, the son would be called firstborn, right? It could be head of the family. It could be many siblings. It could be first in rank. It does not mean first created being. It does not mean first who necessarily means first who was born. So you could call it the chief one. If you recall in the Bible, the Bible calls Jacob God's firstborn. But we know that Esau was really born first, wasn't he? But yet Jacob was the promised one. So he was called God's firstborn. And so they use this term, the writers of the New Testament use this term to describe Christ. To describe his preeminence, his status, that he is high above all else. He is the firstborn. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And you'll start to see how he uses this language. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love 
God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be, what does it say? The firstborn among many brethren. This means he has preeminence amongst all Christians. He has preeminence, the first rank of all Christians. Who's really the head of the church? Is it the pastor? Is it the elders? Only as they are under the true shepherd who is Christ. Right? He is the firstborn. Colossians chapter 1. I'll read it to you. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Does that mean he was the first created being? No. It means that he has the highest rank of all creation. Colossians 1.18 says he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Is he the first one who's been resurrected from the dead? No. There was others who were resurrected from the dead. He actually rose people from the dead. Lazarus, before himself. He wasn't the first one resurrected, right? But he does have the highest rank. Why? Because he is the source of all life that brings people to life. So now, the firstborn means the most honored one, the highest one, the best of all who has been brought to life. He is preeminent in honor. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, angels are wonderful and fantastic creatures, but they do not share in the glory of Christ. They must bow down to him. The writer of Hebrews now quotes the Old Testament 97.7. Uh, to prove his point, nothing or no one should receive worship or adoration rather than Christ. Now, you have to think, what is going on? Why does God do anything? I always ask my kids this. Because this answers everything in the whole universe. Why does God do anything? Ultimately, he does it for his glory that his glory may be known. And his glory is known when he does things for the good of his people, right? He does it for his glory. Ultimately, he does all things for his glory. So you have to think about this. There are myriads and myriads of angels watching what's happening. So every time we come to church or every time you hear a preacher preaching, sometimes we have this ho-hum idea of, oh, I'm just here. I gotta go. Sometimes the youth may say, my parents make me. My kids say, they have no, they have no uh, choice. They have to go, right? I got to go to church, but you have to understand. When those folks who don't know what's really going on, the, the angels all over the universe are watching what's happening. Watching how Christ has entered into this earth. Watching how People are being used to proclaim the glory of Christ and their eternal souls are changing. Watching someone become regenerated and come to Christ and they are new creatures. And watch this. When the son, here's, here's, the, um, here's the verse, right? In, uh, let me go back to Hebrews chapter one. It says here, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And so as this act of God coming into the world, and what is that? The incarnation. The angels are peering, looking, are in astonishment. And they say, 
Why would you do that, God, to a people who deserve hell, to a people who spurn your name, to a people who will not bow the knee to your son? What do they do with him? They took him and they killed him. Why would you do that? And they are astonished. The angels are more astonished than we are. Look at Luke. Luke chapter 2. Remember this. Sometimes we only turn here during Christmas, right? Luke chapter 2, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger because there's no room for them in the, in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So Christ comes into the world. The only proper response of the angels is to give praise. Watch this, okay? And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy in which you will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is the incarnation. This is God coming in the flesh, right? Look at verse 13. Here is the proper response of heaven. They cannot believe what is going on. God, who created all of them, who created the heavens and the earth, is now swaddled and coming down in the manger. And what do they do? And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. They can't help but look. Sometimes I watch some funny clips on YouTube. You ever watch some funny clips on YouTube? And then one of my kids will come around and want to look. And my shoulder is starting to weigh down. Then another one would come on this side. And then a head would pop out here. And then a head would pop out. I said, hey, get off me, right? What's happening is they're curious to see. And brothers and sisters, when the heavenly host looks at God's redeemed people, they are curious to see just what he is doing. At his incarnation, even as the gospel spreads forth. Look at, um, and this, is, this, this verse makes it even more distinct. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Ten and twelve, ten to twelve. He says, as to this salvation, what salvation? That which we share. Remember, we talked about salvation as an umbrella term. That's not just the past that God has forgiven you of your sin. Salvation has a past, present, and future aspect to it. The past is that we've been justified by faith. It is a done work. It is an outside declaration of God upon us because of what Christ has done. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, 
as your only means of salvation, that he is the only way I can be saved and forgiven of my sins, God says he will declare you with the righteousness of Christ. And that is a done aspect. And it is our only sole ground of salvation. That is what happens in the past. And if you have not come to Christ, I beckon you to come. I beg you to come. Come to him. It will all be washed away. But there is a present aspect of salvation, and that is what we call sanctification, that he is changing us to become more and more like Christ. There are numerous verses. Then there's a future aspect of our salvation, that is that we will be in glory with him, away from the presence of sin forever and ever. And so Peter is saying this is a whole package. We could just talk about this word here in uh, verse 10 as to this salvation. We could just keep talking about that, close our Bibles, and we'll be done because that's already full. But notice this. He says, this whole thing that a Christian has, this whole package that we even saw in Romans chapter 8 of being justified, sanctified, glorified, predestined to be conformed to his image. Now he says here, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful searches and inquiries. And so now he's talking. Peter's saying the Old Testament prophets, they wanted to see clearly what you see clearly. Okay? Are you following me? We are in a New Testament. We are in a new covenant relationship with God. We have been, we see clearly because revelation is over. All right? All of it has been done. And now it says, you make careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was in indicating as he is predicted to the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This is an amazing fact that as you sit here, if you are a believer in Christ, what this is saying is you see more clearly than the prophets of old. That is astounding to me. You see more clearly than Moses did. This is what the text is saying. You see more clearly than Isaiah did. They saw a part. They saw partial. Even if you read the writings of Isaiah, he, saw, he, he thought the first coming and the second coming were kind of jammed together of Christ. You, as a normal, regular believer in Christ, living in Oceanside or Carlsbad or Encinitas or Vista, wherever you may live, San Marcos, right? You see more than the prophets of old. And notice he says here, he says here, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you, okay, so now it's freely given to you, through those who preach the gospel to you, this is amazing, okay? How do you come to know the clear revelation of God? It is by preachers. Notice it says here, who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. This is why we hold preaching so high. God uses preachers. It is a funny, funny method. Paul says it's a foolish method. And I understand that. It's a foolish method. But this is the way God is designed so that he gets all the glory. Notice what he says here. It was preached to you, the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, look at this, things into which angels long to look. This is why the emphasis 
cannot be on supernatural creatures. It cannot be on other things because the angels long to look at the grace that you have received, brother and sister. They look at it. They look at the scoundrel that I am before I came to know Christ and the relationships I broke and the sin that I committed both in my mind and in my heart and in action. They look at the scoundrel I am and they say, how can he have received this gospel of grace? I want to look. And it's like my kids pouring over the couch. I want to see. The angels are glorifying Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, his heavenly hosts are more astounded that Christ would ever deal with a person like Angels will never know grace. Did you know that? It's like this. In eternity past, if I could say that, okay, God is talking to his angels. And he says, I am a wise God. And the angels can say, of course you are a wise God. And then he says, I am a creative God full of fantastic designs. They say, of course, you've made all of this. And then he says, I'm a merciful God. And they say, what is that? I have grace upon grace over people who spurn me. And they say, what does that mean? And he says, I have patience, which you have never seen. And they don't understand what that means. And then when mankind was created, and when we rebelled in him, in Adam and Eve, we all rebelled in him. You, you may say, I didn't do it, but your life proves it. You still live that way, right? In rebellion. I don't want anything about Christ. I don't want... If you live in rebellion in Christ, if you don't want him as your Lord, if you don't want him as your Savior, you are in Adam. You don't want him to have any control over your life. You are in Adam. This is why whenever those scriptures speak, you rile up against it. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you rile up. What is that? What is that rebellion? That is because you are in Adam. You've not been forgiven. You've not come to know Christ, right? And so here, what this is saying is the, the angels Praise God for the grace that you and I have received. They bow down. He worship Christ because he is fully and completely God. Worship Christ because he is the exalted and treasured one. The angels themselves worship him. Worship Christ because he is the awesome and powerful creator. Go, turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 7. Verse 7, and the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The angels, the word there for makes means to do, to make, or create. The creator should be worshipped, not the created. He is vastly superior to the angels, for they were made by him. In Colossians 1.16, if you want to jot that down, it says, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and the earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. 
And we understand that to be the ranking of the angels. So worship Christ because he is fully and completely God. Worship Christ because he is the exalted and treasured one. Worship Christ because he is the awesome and powerful creator, even over angels. Fourthly, worship Christ because he is the unrivaled and honorable ruler. He is the unrivaled and honorable ruler. This is incredible. He says, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. What's amazing is that this verse is taken right out of Psalms. And here, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But notice what he tags on to there, the writer of Hebrews. He says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Here's what's amazing, okay? In this psalm, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Jews saw it simply as, this is Elohim, the, he, he rules, he reigns, he has the throne. But the writer of Hebrews is trying to drive this point home. This would be blasphemy if Jesus wasn't Lord. This would be blasphemy if Jesus wasn't God. He says, the throne that you think God sits on, right? Your conception of God, that throne who, who you says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I think it's out of Psalm 95. He says, that's the Son's throne. That's Jesus' throne. He sits on there and he rules forever and ever. So, as he says that, the psalm was written of God. Now it's in clear revelation. What does he mean? Jesus Christ sits upon that throne. Then he says, the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. We know that scepter is a symbol of rule. We know that from Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Then it says, thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. I think that's wonderful. This is, this is a promise to Christians that his rule will never leave him. His throne is forever and ever. And what I love about this is he says, thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Righteousness there is uprightness, equi equitability, and lawlessness is the practice of wickedness and sin. So you can't love righteousness without hating sin. Okay? And this is what Jesus is saying. But what I think is wonderful is that Jesus' rule, in Jesus' rule, every single iniquity, every single sin, can I say this? Every single time you've been cheated or defrauded, it will all come to light. Why? Because his rule is righteous. He never will forget. Isn't that wonderful? There's a song that we sing all things will be made right. It will be made right in Christ. This is, why, this is why we can stand, even if you are defrauded, even if you do suffer loss, God will not be mocked. He will reveal his righteous rule. That is my only hope. Okay. Now, I do not hope for the evil and the destruction of the wicked. I do not want that because... In my heart, I could want it in a sinful manner. Do you understand? I don't trust myself. 
I could have it in a revengeful manner. I have confidence in a God who will judge righteously. Amen. He has a righteous rule. He, he will be unrivaled and he's an honorable ruler. Therefore, God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. Fifth, worship Christ because he is the ageless and eternal architect. He is the ageless and eternal architect. Notice he says, he is preexistent. He is preexistent. And thou, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of thy hands. We understand that to be his creative power. Colossians talks about it, verse Colossians chapter 1, 16, for by him all things were created, but also that he existed before all of that. This is the one we praise. This is the one we cherish. He says, he is immovable. They will perish, but thou remainest. They will all become old as a garment, as garment as they will be changed. And he says, all things will be changed. And I, I think this is a reference to all of creation is going to be rolled up as a garment. And he's going to remake heaven and earth. But notice that all of these things change, but he does not change. He is unchanging. Notice he says here. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. But you are the same. Amen. That's good news. And your years will not come to an end. I remember I was counseling a family. I was counseling a, a brother. And I think after 20 years, his wife decided to leave him. And she just decided. She wasn't a believer. He was a believer. He came to Christ while they were both unbelievers. They were married. And I asked, I asked him, why, what happened? Why did she leave? And she, he said, I just, I just didn't want to hear about Christ anymore. I didn't, I didn't want you to tr keep trying to change me. And so that's why she left. All, I, and I was thinking, all of that romance and all of that, I, all the I love yous and all of the kisses and all of the hugs and all the gifts, all of that was kind of, you ever think about, think about things in these terms? That's 20 years of affection given, 20 years of all that, you know, seemingly delight for 20 years. And you base your life on that, and all of a sudden it changes. Now she says she doesn't love him anymore. That's, that is crushing, isn't it? It happens all the time in the U.S., doesn't it? But I think what's, here's what's fantastic. Okay? Notice it says here, you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. Look at Hebrews. This is the same writer, chapter 13, verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
Can I tell you something? I have never regretted following Christ. Never regretted. I know that he has put a love in my heart for him. But I did make a decision. And I've never regretted. I will never turn back. Because you know why? I am basing a life decision on something that doesn't change. On someone who doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me tell you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are basing your life on these things that change, relationships and jobs and pursuits, all these things. I know some folks, they just make a, they'll move cross-country not even thinking about not even thinking about its implications on my soul. Let me tell you something. If you base your decisions, your life, if you trust in Christ, he will never change. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning because you sinned. And he says, well, that's enough. I don't want you anymore. If, in fact, you come to him in truth, he will never change. And what's wonderful about this aspect of God is that it colors everything else. Do you understand what I'm saying? His love doesn't change. His forgiveness doesn't change. His mercy doesn't change. His patience doesn't change. And he calls out to you to turn to him. One, one commentator said this way. Men come and go. Worlds come and go. Stars come and go. Angels are subjected to decay as they fall, as their fall proves. But Christ never changes, is never subject to change, is never subject to alteration. He is eternally the same. He is therefore superior to angels in title, in worship, in nature, in existence, and finally, in destiny. When you stand upon the bedrock that is Christ, you are standing on firm ground. Turn to him. Turn to him. Lastly, worship Christ because he is the favored and exalted conqueror. He is the favored and exalted conqueror. He says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? The footstool is complete domination. When a conqueror in the old days used to, uh, used to beat the neighboring um, armies, they would bring the king in. And they would have this procession. The Caesars would have this procession. And everyone would start to, they would celebrate it. You've seen it in Hollywood, but I'm sure it's not just like that. No one speaks in British accents. That's just, that just, that still gets me, you know. Everyone's speaking in British accents. Sorry. But you're, people are coming, and then they're, they're, they, they sing hymns. They create hymns for the Caesar, okay. This is where we get the word hymns. And as, as they're coming in this uh, victory procession, People are throwing flower petals, and then they're burning incense. And then it'd be, uh, it's like what Paul says, it's a smell of life to some and a smell of death to others, right? Aroma of death to others. Because the prisoners are coming in, and they would take the king of the, of the defeated army, and they would put him on the ground, and the Caesar would step on his neck as a footstool. As a sign of complete dominance. Jesus completely defeated death. 
they're completely defeated sin and completely defeated Satan. And it's only a matter of time when this will all be revealed. Look at First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. He defeated death. First Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 23. Here's this language again. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits after that those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, which he abolished all rule and all authority and power. So Jesus received all authority, Matthew 28. Christ is going to give it back to the Father, right? And he says, for he must reign until he has put, what? All enemies under his feet. Well, who are his enemies? We know that it's sin and Satan, but he says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. When he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. In other words, notice he says here, verse 26, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is stomping the neck of death. He promises if you put your faith in him, you will never die. Now, this doesn't mean in this earth, this doesn't mean in this earth I won't physically die, but I have eternal life awaiting for me. And I have a future with him in glory. If you want to write down his other enemies that he has stomped on their necks is Satan, Revelation 19:20. He will stomp on those who do not bow to him, Revelation 19:15. So, in conclusion. God wants you to worship Christ above all things, even angels. Why? Because he's fully and completely God. Because he's the exalted and treasured one. Because he is the awesome and powerful creator. Because he is the unrivaled and honorable ruler. He is the ageless and eternal architect. And lastly, he is the favored and mighty conqueror. We have a hope, don't we? Don't we? In Christ. Father, we pray. Thank you so much for your text. Thank you that you reveal Christ. Lord, it's like words are being stretched to their utmost. We pray, Father, you would help us even as we think and dwell and concentrate on the glory of Christ as we take the supper. Thank you that you invite us. It is a taste of what is to come in heaven. It is a taste of the feast that we have been invited to up in heaven. Thank you. In Jesus' name.